Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Trial Lawyer Podcast. My name is Gabriel White, and I am with the law firm of White and Garner. I'm here uh, with my partner, Dan Garner. I was also here with me at the firm. Also, we have the pleasure today of our regular co-host, Scott Powers, um, who is from the wonderful law firm of Snow Christensen and Martineau, and Patrick Burt, who is um, a guest uh, on our podcast frequently, especially this year as we are um, doing special episodes of the podcast, of which this is one where we are teaching some of the more advanced topics um, over the podcast that we'll be, we will be teaching in a live CLE at the Utah Law and Justice Center. Our next CLE is... Next week, next Thursday, November... Patrick's going to speak up so he can be heard by the microphone. Our next one is November 1st at 4 o'clock. So next CLE is going to be November 1st at 4 o'clock at the Utah Law and Justice Center. We're going to be dealing with the topic of expert witnesses, something that... Um, this is part of our, our Litigation 101 uh, series where we teach uh, young lawyers or those lawyers who may not get into the courtroom very often a little bit about the litigation process. And um, one of the areas we're adding this year is dealing with expert witnesses because there are obviously um, different rules that apply to testimony from expert witnesses and um, different um, uh, different tactics that need strategies. to be and strategies that need to be employed in order to do that. And the podcast, the purpose of the podcast is actually as a supplement to the CLE. So we'd encourage you to not only subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, but also to register for the CLE and go and get that um, information. And then you know this, a lot of this stuff make make more sense to you as it's. Um, this is mostly made up of information that we won't have time to cover in our uh, in our CLE um, because it is some of the more advanced uh, strategic material um, that um, you know we won't have time to cover. Right. So um, I, I, we have a number of topics here that uh, you know we kind of went around. Expert witnesses are an interesting topic because it seems like everybody has, you know, an opinion uh, about certain types of expert witnesses and a pet peeve and um, witnesses they love, witnesses they hate, and, uh, you know, and, and problems they can create. Um, I think it might be interesting to talk a little bit about start out talking about our own expert witnesses and situations in which dealings with your own expert witness can go wrong. But before we get into that, just a brief word from our sponsors. Unfortunately, most lawyers are never available when you need them. Many of them don't put your interests first. The lawyers at White & Garner do things differently. We take each case very seriously. We will always put your interests first. We represent people who have been injured in accidents, 
We also handle commercial litigation cases. Other law firms assign your case to a paralegal or secretary and put that person in charge of managing your case. Getting your actual attorney on the phone can be a nightmare, no matter how important your case. At our firm, every case is important and every client gets our full attention. We only take cases that we are comfortable taking all the way to a jury trial. Every move we make helps us better prepare your case for trial. To get the best results at trial, you need a lawyer that is paying attention and that is not afraid of a jury. You need the lawyers at White & Garner. Each client of White & Garner has access to their attorney at any time, any day of the week. You can talk directly to your attorney about your case at any time, day or night. If we do miss your call, we will get back to you within 24 hours. If you hire a lawyer from White & Garner, we will be there for you when you need us. That is our promise, and we keep our promises. Anybody ever had a situation? Uh, if not, I have a great story. Oh, I think we've all had situations where your expert comes in and says, well, I think X. I've had a number of situations. I don't want to specify the expert, but I've no, hired... And we'll say here we're, we're going to avoid... Uh, <laughs> You know, I, we're going to avoid the... Uh, Naming the, names. The libel coverage that we will require to uh, name names, but... And that leads into the, it's a pretty small world out there. Too. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you, you tend to see the same experts over and over again. And, and so many of you out there, even though we're not saying names or we're trying to avoid identifying information, will know exactly who we're talking about. Um, but you may, also, you may think you do, and, and you, you may not, so... Well, I've had situations both where an expert has come in with an adverse opinion and I've not used the expert, found somebody else and and had them look at the same information and come to a totally different and better opinion. I've also had situations where my expert comes back to me with an opinion just before you know he's obligated to be producing that opinion and having to kind of go back through it with him and say, really? Did you yeah. consider this, that, and the other? And he goes, oh. Oh no! Oh, don't you love it that it's it, a never? It's never like two months before their opinion is. No, like no, it's the, I think X, I think before. X, I think X. Oh, by the way, here's my report, and it says Y. Whoa, 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 whoa! Why is your report saying something totally different than you told me the entire time? I can I can tell you at least one occasion, and several attorneys who were there, if they happen to be subscribers to the blog, which if, if they're not, they're dead to me. Um, but, um, but. But by subscribing Tell me how you, you really the podcast, you can resurrect the yourself in you the can, eyes of You gay. can, you know, by going to iTunes, subscribe. But hey, you yeah, know, all this of is you powers, guys, none of you were ever did. All of you guys better be <laughs> nothing. But all love. of you guys better be subscribe better be subscribers on the podcast. And you know I can check, right? We're running your IP address. So uh, I'll, maybe I'll let you think about that tonight and then and then check over it in the morning. I noticed okay. Scott just pulled out his phone and was like, oh, <laughs> subscribe. <laughs> I'm not subscribed. Hey, well, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. And step so, one, avoid being murdered by Gabe. Yeah, step two. Step one may be a little difficult. So so what, what do you usually find is the reason that your experts... So, so let me give you a story, of, for instance. Right. This is probably, and like I said, any lawyer who is in the room will know exactly the situation I'm talking about. And it wasn't a common expert. It wasn't somebody who, you know, does this all the time. It was a fire case. Um, and my client 
or my expert had received a phone call from somebody, you know, through the grapevine that had originated, he, according to him, and, you know, according to our belief, they denied it, of course, that, you know, the big fire protection company that he was a subcontractor of occasionally, not on this case, um, was unhappy with the idea that he was going to be testifying against I was um, in this case. And you were probably in this deposition. You probably remember this. I cannot speak to that, Senator. Okay. <laughs> you probably were. If, if you remember, you were there. So, <laughs> luckily, I had gotten this guy originally to respond to a very early summary judgment motion that opposing counsel had unwisely filed very early in the case. In my opinion, unwisely, because there were still just so many outstanding issues of fact that it was denied, but... And I, I explained to the opposing lawyer, who was somebody I have a great deal of respect for, but, um, <laughs> but, but, but he, I think he was just—I don't know if he was just following orders or if he was just trying to be, you know, the tough guy for the client or or what. But you know, he he said he was going to file it because he didn't think we had anything, and I had gotten our expert to draft a. Um, you know, I'd sat down with him and gotten all of his opinions, and I drafted up a declaration for him to sign. And so he had signed it, and we had submitted it with the summary judgment motion, and summary judgment, of course, was denied. So this is about a year later that we are now sitting around the deposition table, and he has told me about three or four days, uh, the day before the designation is due, and, um, you know... He has told me that he cannot risk uh, testifying against this particular entity because it will hurt his business. And I said, well, do, have any of your opinions changed? He said, no, I, my opinions are the same, but, you know, I just can't do it and I, and I won't, you know, I won't do it. And I said, okay, well, here's what's going to happen. Um, I'm going to subpoena you for your deposition. You're going to have no choice but to show up. And then I'm going to read you your declaration that you signed and ask if you were being truthful when you signed that. And I'm going to get all of the expert testimony I need into the record to keep these guys from getting out again. And part of it was I knew that we were headed for a mediation because it was one of these big construction defect cases. And I knew that there was, you know, no chance I was going to have to be like, ladies and gentlemen, the jury, my reluctant witness, you know, here. Um, but it was, several of the lawyers said, that is one of the most bizarre depots I've ever seen. So I basically spent four hours cross-examining my, ex, my own expert <laughs> and like backing him into one corner after another. And be like, okay, but this is what you wrote and this is what you signed. And what does it say there at the bottom? I probably had him read that like five times. Under criminal penalty of perjury in the state of Utah. You read that before you signed it, didn't you? Yeah, I, and so when you wrote this here, this was true. Yes. And, and eventually, I think his, his, his goal just changed to making sure the counsel for the big company who was in the room knew that, man, he was fighting. He tried. He tried his best. But, you know, I had it in the I, record. I was ready to perjure myself for you. I had it in the record, and I had, I had my uh, well, who, testimony. So who, who elected to... So they elected to depose him? Who did that? 
Well, this was um, this may have been before the election pre-election rules. It might have been before two thousand eleven. This case well because started before the rules change. Yeah, and it had dragged. So there was a lot of construction cases that were running under the old rules even years after the. There probably still are. Yeah, they're few and far between. Few and far between, but I mean, having tried a sixteen-year-old medical malpractice case where we had to like go to the library archives to get a copy of the rules of civil we procedures. We had one case that would, at, at the time, I can tell you, when I, I first got I can it, tell I you like, that, that it happens. This case is older than me. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty funny. So, so, so if we've all had those experiences where an expert all of a sudden bottoms out at the last second, how do you, what do you do to prevent that? I, I mean, I think that, you know, making sure that you're dealing with a reputable expert and somebody who you know, is, is, you know, when they express an opinion and they're tentative about it, that you explore it with them in advance is helpful. And I really do think getting as quickly as you can something in writing from the expert with their signature on it, where they've said, you know, and you've relied on it and you've said, okay, this is what you've said. Because, you know, I, I think it's Roger Dodd's seminars of a Witness has to choose between screwing the, up a case and looking like a liar, or looking stupid. They're going to choose screwing up the case right. every single time. And so, um, you know, if you've got them, if you got it in writing and they deviate from it, and you're like, oh, let me refresh your recollection with this. Oh yeah, that's right. No, yeah, I remember. You know, usually I think that's enough to. So the key is then to, to get handle the, it. So the key then is to get the expert in early, get him as much information as possible, and then get him to lock into an opinion early rather than sit and wait and see where they land. Yeah, and I think also you know it's important to make sure that the expert you know has all the facts that they are committed that they're not. You know, there are plenty of defense experts out there, for example, in certain fields that will do the occasional plaintiff's case because they think it makes them seem more well-rounded. So they'll try and cherry-pick just a dynamite plaintiff's case, and they'll look at yours, and they'll think it's dynamite. dynamite. And then later on, you know, a bad fact comes up because there's no such thing as a perfect case, and they want to weasel. Right. You know, and so I don't think there's any way to avoid it completely. But worst comes to worst, if you get them, if you get them in a sworn statement beforehand, um, you know, it's not pretty, but you can always beat them over the head with it later. Right. Um, See, but in most of my cases, I don't think I'm in a position to get that sworn statement because ninety percent of what I need to feed them in order to get that you know, the final product hasn't, hasn't arisen yet. Well, and that, and that goes to the other issue with experts that I think is a larger issue than we can deal with today, but I just want to mention, um, you know, for any of those of you out there from the general public who are thinking about, you know, what is this expert witness stuff, the reality is that if we looked hard enough, we could find an expert who would be willing for enough money to come into court and swear that the earth was flat. I mean, not all experts are, you know, straight up uh, whores, I guess is the proper term. Gabriel. 
You were well, looking for something else. But I, I was looking for something else, but I, you know, it was apt. Gun, maybe. It was apt. Um, but but the reality is is that if you if you have the money to pay, you can find an expert that will say almost anything. I mean, I have had experts that have been contradicted by, you know, in a medical case that have been contradicted by, you know, fifteen different treating doctors. Who, who do this, and they flew in somebody from New York and, and who said, oh, no, it was totally fine. And, you know, even when confronted, so this, this expert gives his opinion, right, that it's totally fine. And then, because it's been so long and because it, the depot of the doctor had never closed, the doctor's deposition, it had just been put on hold years before, they reopened the doctor's deposition and they asked him a few additional questions. Well, the doctor said a few things that were not tenable with the expert's opinion. And so we go out to redepose the expert, and I'm saying, all right, do you believe that this is appropriate? And he says, no. And I'm like, well, let me read from this deposition of the, you know, Dr. So-and-so. And, you know, I can just see him squirming in his chair, looking at counsel, like, what am I supposed to do? And even then, he's like, well, you know, I can understand in certain circumstances, but you know, realistically, in these circumstances, I think this was the right, you know, the right call to make. Right. And they even weaseled around it. So Now, and I, I might sound a little naive and a little idealistic here, but you for know. me, I much prefer an expert that I know is going to tell me how it is. And an expert that's going to tell me, you've got troubles here, here, and here. Really, Patrick? Um, Yes. Really, Patrick? <laughs> yes, because yeah, really, I, I mean, you want to spend, you want to, you want to spend like, like five thousand dollars for somebody who's not going to say what you want them to say. No, not necessarily that I want them to that they're not going to say what I want them to say. But if if I have a gaping hole, something that's really going to come bite me in the in the case, I want to know that ahead of time. And if I have to employ an expert for some particular. Um, field that I don't understand personally, that I don't have the knowledge to be able to understand. I'd rather that <clears throat> I'd rather that expert explain that to me, so I know what I'm dealing with. It's kind of like the same thing of addressing your warts. You know, we always talk about in trying well, yeah. to address your warts. You have to know what the worst is that's going to come. And I think, and I think the answer to that, at least, you know, that I've found in the medical context is 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 relying a bit on is relying on treaters um, who will talk to you. And that's why, you know, there'll be some of the same doctors that will show up on a lot of my cases, and I refer my clients to these doctors. And it's not because, you know, they're always going to give me uh-huh. the, the answer that I want. It's that their focus is on treating the patient. And in addition to that, and they're, and they're good doctors, they will talk to me. Like, a lot of the problem with treating doctors is they will not talk to you without a subpoena and a deposition. Even if they're your own clients, treaters, they're so afraid of, of you know, being slapped back by the man that, that they won't talk to you. And I've got two or three in different areas who are willing to have a phone call with me, and they say, you know, oh, I'm really strong here. Here's where... You know, I'm having trouble. If you want me to be able to give you information about that, you're going to have to get me more records or you're going to have to explain 
you know, why this is to me. Um, and they're willing to talk to me or they're willing to fill out a questionnaire for a nominal fee and just send it to me. And they're totally the treating doctor, um, but, you know, they see it as part of their care of their patients to talk to the patient's lawyer. Not always to agree with the patient's lawyer. You know, there's one of them that countless times I wanted him to say one thing and he just won't. Um, but, you know, the willingness to get on the phone with 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 me or, or to write me an email or to, you know, um, you know l- let, fill out a questionnaire for my client while they're in the office um, is golden because they, they can tell you your warts and they can tell you because they're clean. They're not retained experts. They're not somebody that, you know, you're going to necessarily... Um, you know, that's not how they make their living. They make their living doing surgeries. You know, you know, they occasionally get asked to testify, but it's usually about a surgery they either do. I mean, there's nothing more powerful when you're talking about a case involving like a back surgery when you can say, get the doctor up on the stand and say, you, you believe this patient needs this back surgery? Yes. And explain why. And they explain. And, they, and then ending the examination. And if... Um, and if the patient's able to pay for it, um, you know, from the out- outcome of this case, will you be willing to perform that back surgery yourself? Willing and able? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'll fire up my OR immediately. Um, juries put a lot of stock in that, I think. Um, and so, you know, finding an expert, if you're worried about an expert just telling you what you want to hear or not giving you the, the bad news until they've, you know, billed you. I mean, there's one doctor, I won't say his name, so but... You, sorry to interrupt, but I, yeah. I think I think that was kind of my point of, uh, I want to know the worst that's going to come from my expert. I think, I think you think guys just said the same thing. Yeah, I think it's easier, I think it's easier to explain away the difference is, in your case than to try to defend an expert that's keeping an untenable position. The difference, the difference in the two positions is that I think you're talking about you wanting uh, a retained expert who will do that sure. versus somebody who's, who's a non-retained treater or, or, or in, that, in, that, in that position like a, somebody who's actually doing work on a, on a project. But, um, you know, I've had a particular expert, and I don't know if he's doing work anymore, um, bill me $5,000 to review a huge stack of medical records and I said hey I sent them to him I said hey um, here is medical records I need to know if you can give me an opinion about you know the causation on this and he sends me the bill for five thousand dollars and along with that says no you know I believe that it was caused by XYZ other factor and that you're gonna lose and I called him up and asked him well when did you figure that out and he said, oh, that was evident from the first couple of pages I read. And I said, and you kept reading? <laughs> well, yeah, you told me to review all the documents, so I reviewed all the documents. I'm like, so you're charging me five grand, even though from the get-go you knew you wouldn't be able to give me 
He didn't want to just reason. reject you. He wanted to thoroughly reject you. No, he wanted to build the crap out of me and yeah. then reject me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just thought that was completely unethical and unprofessional. <laughs> but, you know, and with retained experts, I think there's a risk of that because they wind up with... Um, you know, incentives to stay on the case. They wind up with incentives to make sure that, um, you know, as long as they can, regardless of warts or whatever, whereas the unretained guy who's just, you know, working on the house uh, is going to get paid regardless. But the good thing about our small legal community, and Dan was talking about this a little before we even got on the podcast, is that it's a small legal community, and experts that do things like that are not going to last long. You know, it's the ones that you can rely on to do a good job that are going to do a thorough job and aren't going to leave you hanging. Those are the ones that stick around. And 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 I think that I, I think that's true to a certain extent. I think that there are some experts out there that do a great job for one side or the other and they keep they'll keep popping up for that one side or the other cuz they'll just say, "Well, that's my opinion." You know, and for them doing a good job is having the opinion that the attorney who retained them asked for. Wants them to have. Right. And so, you know, there was a, a, a doctor that I knew that lived in uh, Sun Valley during the week because he thought the air was so bad here. And he would fly in for two weeks, do a bunch of expert witness work and then fly back. And that was how he supported himself. And I actually had him, I was defending a contractor in a case where he was a plaintiff. And um, like a TV had fallen on his face or something. And it, you know, it was funny watching him describe his pain and suffering and everything and having seen him in other cases. You're like, oh, that plaintiff's fine and you know, making it up, blah, 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 blah. And I think Jesse Trinidad was, was kind of taking the lead and he was hilarious. Um, but, you know, once we got it settled, I ran into the guy a few weeks, months later at the Starbucks, and he said, so are you still wearing the white hat or are you wearing the black hat? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And he's like, well, are you representing defendants still or are you representing plaintiffs? And I'm like, well, I'm, I represent both, but primarily plaintiffs. But you remember in that case... That we just said you were the plaintiff, right? Oh, well, yeah, but that was, you know, it's an aberration, blah, blah, blah. I was like, but that's okay. when I was hurt. Yeah, exactly. That was, that was when I was hurt. That was totally legitimate. Um, so, you know, I don't know. So, Patrick, you mentioned you had a beef uh, with uh, life care planners. Tell us about what a life care planner is. Uh, for our, our fellow list, our listeners out there, and um, you know, and what what and it is so that your such. your beef is. Well, I'll actually let <clears throat> maybe I'll let Gabe explain the logic behind. <laughs> I still don't know what a life care planner is. Why don't you tell me? Retaining a life care planner. All I know is that uh, um, maybe it's my skewed perception, but it just seems to me that. There's never a lot of weight or value that comes from a life care plan, except in very rare circumstances. I think that... Such as? 
when there's really catastrophic injuries that are going to that are truly going to prolong throughout the life. Um, I see way too many life care plans being thrown in for, you know, someone breaks a wrist or someone breaks an ankle, and they get a life care plan, and I just think. What, what, what is the point of that? To me, as a defense attorney, the moment I see a life care plan in situations like that where it really doesn't justify one, the attorney either shows me that they're, they're scared or that they don't understand their case. And so I was telling Gabe before we got on that one of my favorite questions to always ask life care planners is, well, I have two favorite questions I always like to ask life care planners. The first is to always say, all right, so your life care planner, how long have you been doing this? So I've been doing this for 20 years. How many life care plans have you done? Oh, I've done hundreds. How many of your clients have you ever seen actually follow through with the life care plan you, you prescribe? Zero. And, and my, my redirect on that would be, are you typically involved with the implementation of the life care plan? So or are you just, is, your, is that part of your job is to follow the planner around and make sure they... Do this? I mean, how would you even know? And they say, well, I wouldn't know. So that's actually my second favorite question is, oftentimes you can look in a life care plan and there is a line item bill for the life care planner's services. So Or for an administrator or somebody. Sure. Right. So I love to ask the question, okay, so if I look through your life care plan, one of the biggest money ticket items in this life care plan is you, isn't it? So it's a little self-serving to say, you know, you need to pay me for the next 20 years to moderate to to uh, moderate this 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 individual's to make sure you pick up your prescriptions. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, I think that there are places for and 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 where life care plans are appropriate. My take on it from a plaintiff's perspective. Oh, sorry, is, sorry. Before I just actually thought of something. Okay. One one last example. Patrick had a thought. Everyone. Sorry. And so pause. Apology accepted. Patrick. Well, before we go off on on the, the the valid uses for life care plans, because there there are some, not many. Are there? <laughs> I was recently. You guys are killing me. <coughs> rarely in a construction case do I. I was a life care planner. <laughs> you should start. Because um, that building needs some serious care. I was recently in a final pretrial conference with one of the j- local judges that I actually respect quite a bit. And <clears throat> we were listing our witnesses, and it was a, it was a shoulder replacement. The guy was going to have to the torn rotator cuff. And, uh, and the other side had gotten a life care planner. Mm-hmm. And we were rattling off the witness. The judge was asking us, okay, who are your witnesses? Do you have experts? How many experts do you have? And um, the, ju- the judge said, how many days are you going to need? And I said, I think three. The other side said, two weeks. And the judge said, you need two weeks for a rotator cuff surgery, injury. And and then we went through the witnesses, and I said, you know, I've got this type of expert. I've got one or two experts. The plaintiff said, I've got these types of experts. I have a life care planner. And the judge interrupted us and said, you have a life care planner for this case? So the skepticism is even shared by members well, of the bench. Well, and, let me, for and let, me give you the, let me give you the rundown as to why... A plaintiff's attorney might might uh, might err on the side of caution by hiring a life care planner on a case where it might be marginal. Part of the reason is because the categories of damages, um, especially in this age where 
you know, demands are basically just completely fed into a computer and a an offer is spit out the other end are divided into so many different categories like loss of quality of life and loss of essential services and all of these other things. And, you know, if you want to have testimony about those at trial, you could very easily have, in many cases, either the plaintiff testify to it or you could have, um, you know, a treating physician testify to it. But the problem is, is that oftentimes when you try that, you're going to get a motion to eliminate from the defense saying, hey, plaintiff can't testify about their loss of essential services. Plaintiff has no idea what these services cost in this, in this, in this area. Or you're going to get a, a motion to eliminate saying this plaintiff can't testify about, you know, what kind of jobs they could get given these, given, you know, their physical limitations after this accident for the next five years or whatever that they're going to be dealing with rehab or whatever. So the life care planner why can come a, why in. Why wouldn't a plaintiff be able to say, I can't mow my lawn anymore. I'm going to have to pay a neighbor kid to do it. A neighbor kid costs 20 bucks a month. Why, why can't a plaintiff say that? Oh, I'm sure they could. And my position would be that they should be able to. But we're talking about all essential services. Like, you know, what does it cost? What does house cleaning cost? What is all this? And so the options are, well, educate my client so they can basically be their own expert or bring in a life care planner a relatively cheap amount and say, yeah, this is what this goes for. And then I don't have to deal with a bunch of silly motions and eliminate. And I have an expert up there who'll say, here's what this costs. Now, you got to keep them. Well, up. another benefit, too, is the plaintiff, you want your, your client or plaintiff in this situation, you don't want him talking about how mowing his lawn, right? You want him talking about the injury, the event, just from a presentation standpoint of what yeah you, you I, I think if I you don't think you want your plaintiff talking about well uh, and it, and it, we and clean if, our house three times a week and it's going to cost this and if the and if you've got the plaintiff up there talking about that you may lengthen the plaintiff's testimony by a great deal whereas if you get a good life care planner they can say here is the evidence for what you know the average cost of this is now, obviously, they can get out of control in certain cases. I mean, you know, I've seen I've seen cases, certainly where they were relevant, where both sides had life care planners. When we had, you know, a person who'd had twenty five surgeries over sixteen years and had massive internal injuries and things like that. But um, and obviously, in cases involving paralysis, you're going to have daily care and and that's going to need to be part of a life care plan and and that those can be more complicated but i think a lot of plaintiffs bring them in at least with the intention originally of sidestepping that that battle at the cost of a couple thousand dollars truncating a lot of yeah just getting up getting them up and saying look here's what this is going to cost here's what this is going to cost here's how much time i estimate that they're going to need this based on talking with their doctors. Also, you know, if you get the right life care planner, you can get, you can save yourself expert witnesses because, first of all, they will talk to the doctors and often send them summaries of their conversations 
and the doctors will sign them and send them back. They will um, talk to their employers and they will get, you know, or their former employers and they will get pay stubs and put them together into a really easy to understand packet and you can give to the jury, which is really helpful for them in calculating these kind of damages that otherwise seem a bit ephemeral. Um, you know, and, you know, they're able to say, so instead of having two or three witnesses where you're, you know, this one test is going to testify about their employment prospects, this one's going to testify about, um, you know, their, uh, about their, you know, what their essential services are going to cost, this one's going to testify about what their occupational therapy is going to cost or their, you know, functional impairment is going to be. Um, you get one expert who will go and gather all those records together in one place and say, okay, based on what the doctors have told me and my expertise, here's what this person needs. And, you know, if the person has cognitive problems or has problems managing their finances, even as in brain injury cases, you may have something in there for a... for a... Uh, uh, somebody to manage and oversee that aspect of their lives. Now, after the case is over, can you force the plaintiff to follow every aspect of the life care plan? Of course not. I mean, it's still America, right? And it's not a guardianship proceeding. For now. Yeah, for now. Um, so, you know, I, I think that they have their uses. I do think they can be uh, overused. Um Let's talk a little bit about um, another kind of what's becoming a more advanced topic, although uh, it, it doesn't seem like it needs to be if everybody reads the rule, which is the Rule 35, um, defense, defense Medical IMEs. Exam. Independent. Independent. Uh, independent. Yeah. I, I think we should just... Independent, unbiased medical examinations. Yeah, no. You're killing me. <laughs> You're killing me. In other words, when your expert comes and sits in a room with my client for hours and talks to him, that's independent. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh -huh. the, wis the, the wisdom is in... It doesn't even say it in the rule. <laughs> rule 35 allows you to get the plaintiff's... But it doesn't say it's in, it doesn't say into it's in a room with a doctor who no, has not been treating that plaintiff and is not sympathetic to that plaintiff to give an unbiased objection objective opinion I'm, I'm reading as it. to the condition I'm, of the I'm, I'm reading the rule right there and there's a lot it's of words It's about time you, you read the rule yeah. There's there's a lot of words you use that are not in that rule No like that's that, that that's just the wisdom of the ages when, 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 the wisdom of the ages wisdom of the ages when power desires of the independent it has been uh, passed down by the No I don't I don't when, don't, the, plan, I, when the plaintiff hires them their hacks No oftentimes well the reason you the reason you hire them as a as a defendant Gabe is to just have a when they say independent, and we got into this before we got on the record, because Gabe can't. I, Gabe is only able to you, and he's going to cut me off, which is which is par for the course for Gabe. Um, I'll look at him, be quiet. Oh, it's hurting him. Oh my gosh, it's hurting him. I must cut powers off. Tell way it is, because Gabe, no way it is. Oh. Anyway, when I hire a Rule Thirty Five examiner, 
I want someone who is independent from the plaintiff. Here we go. Here we go. From the plaintiff to tell me what they think about the plaintiff's claims and the plaintiff's condition. I'm not saying the person is completely independent, i.e. not being paid by me, because that person is certainly being paid by me. But it is not but they're someone... they're independent because they're more trustworthy than... Certainly more trustworthy. <laughs> oh, you put it this way. The first question is, is, is it your right. client? Put, put, put it this way. Put, put, it, put it this way. I have never, when I've requested that the judge order the other side to refer to it as a defense You have really clients. asked the court of to Of course. Well, motions I mean, I, I, I can understand Absolutely. I can understand an emotion to eliminate. That makes sense. It require, require the defendant. Do you do that? Like, rule, motion for Rule 35 examination. Co-motion for designation no. of said person Why? as not independent it's, because it's, Gabe does not feel said person is as independent that's a, as that's pointless. opposing counsel. The judge, the judge knows exactly. Motion to not use the judge knows the judge knows exactly what you're up to just as much as I do. So I don't need to file that <laughs> let's, motion. Let's put it this way: we feel about the independent medical exams is the same way you feel about life care plans. <laughs> yeah. But well, no, I mean, they, they, but everyone let's, understands but let's the look position. At, are we just supposed to buy the treater's position? Oh, which, when is the treater ever going to say, you know what? I know the what I said, but I uh, never mind. The medical examination that you're that's a totally hiring. different animal we're talking about. I oh. think. It, how? Yeah, we're just we're just paying them. We're saying they're not treating them. We've just paid them. That's the only well, life care planner. The only I think independent. The entire dis- just as discussion as over that. the discussion over life care planner was whether or not this person is a, is actually necessary. And Gabe made a good argument for the reasons why sure. the person is necessary. When it comes to a, well, I'm life, just referring to the independence of. Oh well, you know what? Forget independence. Planner. I mean, we can oh. call them a defense. Insert, insert, like hallelujah sound effect right here. But that's just it. You see, Gabe is mad because someone used the word independent. It's the Declaration of America, not the Declaration of Independence. Because they weren't independent, they were clearly self interested. (laughs) 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 Quit calling it independence. Okay. You're not an independence for Britain, you're self interested for yourself. So, not even the part I really (laughs) wanted to talk about, but all right, we've had that discussion. So, um,. Interesting uh, amendments. That was worth the price of the subscription. (laughs) Yeah, right. The the free subscription. It was worth yeah every every penny. Not an independent Um, subscription. uh, On this, on this. For the listeners that are left, what are we talking about next? (laughs) Hold on. on, What I wanted to talk about here is that um, it says the last line, and this has been amended in the last few years. The person being examined may record the examination by audio or video means unless the party requesting the examination shows that recording would unduly interfere with the examination. And That um, comes up all the time. It does come up all the time, so, especially with neuropsychologists for some, some odd yeah, reason. Yeah, isn't Goldstein very anti Goldstein record. actually Goldstein and uh, your guy that is out in the booth. I mean we're not sorry we're not using that yeah both yeah, of them both week. yeah both of them have actually allowed I don't, and I don't think this would be let a, me ask let me I don't ask think this. this would be a this would be a pro they've both allowed without comment me to record whatever I wanted there have been there there's a particular neuropsychologist who is a favorite of the defense bar who comes into the state is not from here and uh, refuses to do any um, neuropsych reports even if all there is is a tape recorder that's set somewhere in the room like not even in the plaintiff's line of sight 
but like off to the side and it's running the whole. You put time. it in the ceiling tile. You well, can, is there any literature about the effect of recording on someone's neuropsychiatric evaluation? He claims that there is. I suspect that. You know, and well, I, I haven't gone into allows him to present that. Yeah, and, yeah, and I would think and that, I've seen him response. Him oh yeah, win one or two of these, and I've seen him lose several more. And in those cases, it's a great way to knock out the expert because he will, if he if you lose that motion, he will back out and will refuse to do the examination. Let me let me ask you. So, so Dan and Gabe, while I've got you in here. Um, What's the and you can't leave? Uh, What is the why is there the big push to have it recorded? Is it to just you don't trust the credibility of the examining doctor and you want to? It comes back to the independence. So it comes back to independence, and so (coughs) it comes back. Another issue that we were going to talk about is the use of learned treatises. Okay, and especially with neuropsychologists or psychologists. When you go, when you talk about a learned treatise, there's there's one other doc, one one other book uh, that a lot of them rely on, but for most of them it's a DSM five, okay, and the types of conditions that they are typically brought in specifically to try and find a way to diagnose my client with are either malingering, factitious disorder, or a somatic symptom disorder, and we're seeing a lot more of somatic symptom disorder. Um, every time I have gotten with this particular um, neuropsychologist and pulled out a copy of the DSM-5, um, he, he, the, there's obvious signs of frustration on his face. And the reason is, is because what the DSM-5 does is it goes through, and every one of these, it's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental uh, Disorders, I believe. Right? It's I don't know, Gabe. We're getting pretty deep here. Well, I've got a copy. The answer of is sure. Why not? Right here. Yeah. yeah. DSM five. So I'll pop this bad boy open, and we'll look at you know what what are the uh, factors necessary to diagnose the patient with this di- disease, and you know basically what they're trying to convince the jury of is that this person's you know. That, that what's going on with this person is is all in their head and they'll say no that's not what I'm that's not what I'm saying at all but that's what the jury hears when they see hear somebody say person has somatic symptom disorder and they don't they don't really when they give testimony they don't do anything to try and um, you know and and back off of that and the DSM5 will give okay what are the diagnostic criteria for something and they're usually fairly broad I mean you could almost diagnose you know one of the for example one of the main diagnostic criteria for somatic symptom disorder is that they are unduly um, concerned with their with their uh, mental well or their medical well-being. Well, if you've got a client who's, you know, seriously messed up and they have to go to the doctor two or three times a week, what, who's to say that that's unduly concerned? So there's a lot of judgment calls that get made based on the answers that 
the plaintiff will give in this meeting. And there's, you know, and some of it can be based on, the doctor will say, you know, it's based on the tone of voice they said it in or the way they responded or how long they waited to respond. And without having any sort of independent record in that room, it is basically that doctor's word against my clients. And that's what they'll say is, like, look, hey, if I get something wrong, your client can always correct me. But we're usually talking about two-day-long examinations of eight hours each where they're asking the clients not only a, a barrage of questions and putting them through all these tests, but oftentimes asking the same question in different ways. And some of the questions are, like, absurd because they're trying to test for, you know, some particular um, abnormal feature or whatever in the test. And so really the way the client responds to these issues as it comes up later in their report, it matters. So let me... Let Which me. is one of the reasons why I think they made that. They said... They said the person being examined may record the examination by audio or video means unless the party requesting the examination shows that the recording would unduly interfere with the examination. And the cases where I've seen this particular, you know, people who are using this particular neuropsychologist lose, you know, the, the literature usually has to do with a big video recorder and somebody or somebody sitting in on the exam and turning it on, turning it off. And, you know, the judge said, well, I'm not going to allow that, but the, you're, you're, I, I'm skeptical of your argument that putting a tape recorder, you know, on a book on your desk is really going to unduly, uh, is going to interfere with the efficacy of this examination, which is why I think the doctors here that do it more often, like I said, Goldstein, Schweibach, I have had no problems with them telling me, yeah, sure. Schweibach's let me run the camera and sit in the room. Well, I think it's too, it comes back to like when they do interrogations on like criminal suspects. The more information you have, the better it is for us and I think for the case in the whole, like if, if you have a doctor that went off the rails and starts asking all these weird questions and comes back to you with an opinion that doesn't really make sense to you, wouldn't you, I mean, I would think you would want to videotape it in there. And I think for us, it's just... And there's no way the client can ever remember, oh, I was asked this specific question and here was my specific answer. And the doctors will claim the raw scores... And the questions are copyrighted, so I can't give those to you. I can give them to a psychologist if you if you want to go out and hire one, but um, they're not going to be allowed to show them to you either because they're copyrighted. So, like recording is really the only way we have to to uh, to ensure honesty and so independence. So in the evaluation. Me, so, so let me ask you this. If you've ever had a case where the recording actually played any relevant role at all, of that you were able to use the recording to somehow impeach or undermine the evaluation performed by the... No, and the reason is, is because the only time... Yeah, the only time I've had a, a problem where I've had to go back and impeach them 
is when we weren't allowed to record. And then so I you go think back just and the say, presence of the recording keeps them honest and oh, so absolutely. alleviates the problem. Yeah. Because there's so it's it, with that See, amount I'm of time. In my independent medical examiner. Yeah. That I believe they're going to be honest. Whether guy, or not guy who makes all of his money based on yeah no. Nah. I mean, it's just uh, you know it's. Uh, You're just more cynical than I am, Gabe. I believe in the I, goodness of this world. You believe in this goodness of the, of the world. And, and that that you and you You've expect been doing too much plaintiff work. It's made you cynical and skeptical. And once you've bought you your witness, that they, that they stay work. bought. You need to do more insurance defense work so that you can keep your rosy outlook on life and not become. <laughs> I think I think I think we should be I think we should be allowed to do the report or do the examination and then and then before they produce the report, we can bid on them. Who, who's expert they're going to be. <laughs> is it, and is see it, how the report comes out. From your out. perspective, the, the, the docs just, it makes them uncomfortable? Or, I mean, why? I, I'm having a hard time why I would they, care. They say, uh, some <laughs> of them why will man? say. You are having the same right. problem Go I'm ahead. having. Go ahead. Why do I care? Does well, it come I, up that I, often? I, I mean, got to be, it actually comes up a lot. Yeah, I was going to say, every single time. I've got to be honest. I'd have never cared. If they said they want to record it, i say, great. Unless the doctor's okay with it. Let's Unless it's it. like Goldstein or or Schwebeck or one of the local guys that does it all the time, that's like, look, everybody knows my shtick anyway. Like, but there's a couple of attorney. I mean, it's like the hill they want to die on sometimes. See, and that's me. The only time I've ever even thought it a little bit is when my doctor asks for it, and so I'm trying to accommodate the preference of my doctor. Yeah, I mean, that's that's but the only time I've ever had any position on it at all. I, and it kind of goes back to what I said at the beginning too, right? Of that I'm. Much oh, it's more the doctors. Of, it's the doctors that are the ones that right that don't want it recorded. The attorneys, I don't think, would have care any, one way or the other. Would care one way or the other because they do the, assume they're the insurance ever balk at paying for you to fight it. Uh, they don't ever. But the thing is, yes, they do. But the the only. I mean, would. it's on less than one hand that I've ever dealt with this issue. I I just went. You know, the person had an issue, and I went back to the person and said, "Well, they're entitled to do it. So, what is the basis for my motion going to be, expert? And if unless the expert comes back to me with something, I go, well, See, I'm not going to file it then. And if they have what, a reason, then I would go to the insurance company. I never had to go to the insurance company. And that's what I mean by fight. It usually it's a couple emails, a couple phone calls. If we really would prefer not to, and 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 usually the doctor doesn't care enough that it's, it's, that big it's enough that big enough. Yeah, this is the one doctor who I've seen who, I, the, again, the only reason I bring it up is because he's getting to be more popular. But, and I think that's because his opinions are more slippery and more strident. Um, but, um, and he refuses. This is an out-of-towner guy, right? Yeah, he has an office in Salt Lake, but he's, he's in, he's in a, a, diff, a southern part of a different uh, large U.S. state. Can we go back to the uh, was talking about the, the DSM-5? That was a joke. Um, if you want to. Can we... Do you I, want us to go through it? Would you like, would you like to go through it and what figure part? out what it is that's uh, <laughs> this one's what's ailing you? I want to see go to the part about erectile dysfunction. And we can see I want to go, Gabriel, that's PG. If you, it, looks, it, looks, it looks like Gabe's got a page tagged. I, I wonder if that's say. it. Well, that's that's the section that deals with somatic disorders. And, and it, it goes through all There's of the different ones they try. Let me ask you. They try and claim that my client has. Structural concrete. Let me ask you one more question. Let me ask you guys one more question as we close out. Um, I'm not ready to close out. What do you guys, well, we're ready to close out on you is the thing. Oh, okay, I see. 
what do you guys think is the current mood towards experts? I had a let, and let me preface objection. Big. I had a. What do you mean? I had a a partner in my firm that went to a a national conference. It was talking about the presence of millennials on juries and the younger generation attitude on juries. And the overwhelming research is showing that younger jurors don't care about experts. What? Completely ignore experts. That's because they, really? it's that because they, they also don't care about the judge's admonishment not to Google exactly. things. That they, and they, they, well, they look it up themselves. Yeah, right? that they, they think that they, they can... just look up everything. They, 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 can, they think they can figure out the answer themselves and they don't need to listen to or rely on experts. And so experts' sway in cases is waning because the rising generation doesn't put the stock into experts that maybe the past generations did. Thoughts well, on that? What do, what think, do you do? I, I don't I think, think you can never gonna, not hire an expert, ever. Yeah, I don't think that's ever going to change until until either there's a rule that comes out that changes when you need an expert and uh-huh. when you don't, and uh, when the sort of hardball approach to litigation stops being let's file a motion to challenge every area where they their ability to present testimony in every area where they don't have a retained expert. I agree procedurally it doesn't change the way you have to retain and treat experts, but does it change the way you approach a a trial with your experts? Then, in my mind... They have to testify, they have to say what they got to say in order for the case not to get tossed on the direction verdict. I think it'll change when the appellate judges are millennials, right? Yeah. Because that, that's what that's why we're doing what we're doing is that so that when, when whoever gets appealed is dead, I well maybe. Oh my gosh! You're talking about people in their twenties. What I'm saying is, we're the most of our cases we build them yes for the jury. We pre, we present them more for the jury, but experts and making sure this factor gets hit, this factor gets hit. That's that's for uh, protecting for appeals more than anything. Not necessarily uh, presenting it to the jury. Yeah, true. Because they're not gonna they're not gonna go back to that room and say, "Well, he hit this factor that he had to hit, and he had he hit this factor that he well, had." The, to hit. The one type of expert I think that will retain their credibility and the power with the jury. Life care planners. No, <laughs> uh, the treating doctor. That's. And I was treating say doctors, the exact same. Somebody who can get up and treaters, say, I think, are always the most. I, somebody can get up and say, I have been treating this patient for the last 10 years, and you know this has been my experience with this patient. They're honest. They always tell me the truth. And you know I saw them before this accident. I saw them after this accident. And you know here is what um, you know the changes I saw. And I'm confident in it because I know this patient better than any of you do. And I think that's really tough from the defense side to, you know, which is why we have Sorensen versus Barbudo, is that, you know, when you do get a, you know, obviously it's based on the the physician-client privilege, but when you do get uh, a treater that sours on a patient, you know, it can be deadly. And so, um, you know, fortunately for plaintiffs, we have the physician plaintiff privilege and we can prevent those doctors from meeting with the defense um, 
a lot of attorneys have not yet learned this rule. Um, Key but, takeaway. But, so if you uh, stayed here this long. If you stayed here this long and you're an attorney and you're defending a case, do not have ex parte communications with the opposing treating, uh, with the, the plaintiff's treating doctors, or you, you're likely to be in big, big trouble. Either sued or um, get your doc, get the doctor sued. Um, I remember hearing all the parade of horribles that happened to Barbudo after he got, Dr. Barbudo after he got sued in that case and lost. Um, it, it was really, really a big deal. And yeah, end on a downer, Gabe. Too well, late, Gabe. Too late. But. And again, all this plaintiff work is just making you so unhappy and so. Experts. Yeah, experts. Gabe I just think. Not knowing everything to knowing more. I just think. Okay, so here's the take. The case here's the take. Here's the take. Here's the take. Here's the take. Okay. I think experts started out, with, started out with the best intentions, having experts, explaining it. And then we went through the Kumo Tire and the Daubert periods, and we got, we told judges that they were the gatekeepers of fact, and we started to turn it into you need an expert for everything. And that's where we are. And that's where we are, and I don't see really a way back. and, I I and, that, and it didn't used to be that way. It used to be, even even in the, the 70s and 80s, having an expert testify in a case was very rare. Because you would just, you know, if, if there was math to be done, you would just do it on the chalkboard and it would be done. So you didn't need an economist. And, you know, if, if we were going to talk about the plaintiff's medical condition, you just put the treaters up. And, you know, I mean, only in rare cases... You know, like in medical malpractice, did you really need experts or, right. you know, serious product liability that was really complicated? And it's just, you know, skyrocketed. And I think, you know, if, if we're honest, part of the reason for that is because judges have learned that this is an incredibly easy way to clear their dockets is by going through and when they see the motion, oh, they need to prove this. They need to prove X in order to win. Um, in order to prove X, they don't have a, they need an expert, they don't have one, ergo, the case must be dismissed. And I think for some judges, not all, that is a very tempting uh, proposition to look at because they're thinking, do I want to go through a five-week medical malpractice or, um, or, or, you know, product liability case with a, you know, high probability of being reversed if I say they don't need an expert, or do I want to play it safe, dismiss it, have that time on my calendar free, and rely on the Court of Appeals and the Supremes to tell to me that, yes, I was right. They did need an expert to prove that. Yeah, and I wish I still had it. I had a, I remember a couple of years ago, I had a list on my desk of probably, I want to say it was, eight or nine cases from the the Utah Court of Appeals of the Supreme Court where um, the appellate court said, you needed an expert, you didn't have one case gone. Yep. Um, And it it ranged from laying pipes to... um, you know, I can't even think of. You'd be examples. surprised. It was it was base is basically to show that the trend was eating an expert for everything. Yeah, it, you'd be surprised at the stuff that you would think that 
you could get with common knowledge that now you need an expert for. Yeah. And it just raises the cost of litigation and the time and energy involved. And yeah. So it's a mess. But that's where we are. Thank you so much for joining us for this, once again, special edition of the Trial Lawyer Podcast. Um, please don't forget to subscribe through iTunes and to um, visit the website of our sponsor and also to um, come to our CLE uh, next week, uh, next Thursday. November 1st, 4 o'clock. November 1st at 4 o'clock at the Utah Law and Justice Center, uh, which is the bar's headquarters. I don't know why they don't just call it the bar's headquarters, but that's okay. And um, Law and Justice Center does sound pretty cool. It, it sounds. It sounds like. Sounds it's like, like somewhere. Batman it sounds like a, out. Yeah, I was, I was gonna say it's, it's like the Super Friends live there. Like, yeah, why, I mean, because it's supposed to be called the Bar's headquarters. Yeah, Is that just, a ranch? Or the. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, okay. my name is Gabriel White, and thank you for listening to the Trial Lawyer Podcast. <laughs>